Tonight we are focusing on the topic, the body you have prepared for me. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through, and I'll just read these uh, verses tonight. I'll read through verse 12. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would, they, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience, consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Then he said above, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. The church has been celebrating Good Friday for about 14 centuries, but it is a tradition. It's a tradition much like Christmas is a tradition. We don't celebrate this evening. We don't come here tonight by the authority of God to do so necessarily, but it is a privilege to do so, and it's a blessing to do so. I hope that you're here enjoying that you get to spend Friday remembering the most important person who has ever lived and the person that we will worship for eternity and the only person who is worthy to be worshipped for eternity, in part because of what we are observing tonight. We are observing this tradition, Good Friday, but we're also observing what Christ has commanded for us to observe tonight, the Lord's Table. This has been called in the Baptist tradition, something that we observe. It's been called an ordinance. And yet I also like to use the term sacrament, which would get me kicked out of a lot of Baptist churches. Not the one down south here, I don't think, maybe. Uh, But what do I mean when I say the word sacrament? That's important to distinguish because when Rome talks about sacrament, they're talking about a continual sacrifice something that we observe in the Lord's Supper, when those blessings are bestowed or when the right words are spoken, the bread turns into the body of the Lord and the wine turns into the blood of the Lord as it were actually his physical body and physical blood. That's not what is meant by the word sacrament historically. The Puritan Richard Vines says it really well and sums it up well. He says, A sacrifice is something offered to God by men. A sacrament is offered and given to man by God to be eaten or used in his name. And so the part of the offering which is offered up to God may be called a sacrifice. 
Christ offered up himself to God, a sacrifice. And that part, eaten or used by man, is called a sacrament. The very body and blood of Christ was sacrifice, not a sacrament. The bread and wine that we'll observe tonight, these are sacraments, not a sacrifice. And in that way of seeing things, we see God as the provider of what's in front of us tonight. But not just about these elements, but he gave his son. He's the provider. He's the one who gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, who established this ordinance himself. 1 Corinthians 11.25, the Lord is quoted here as saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And often we do keep the blood of Christ before us. We think about it often. We preach about it often. Actually, we write a lot of songs about the blood of Christ, and rightly so. With his blood, he paid the ransom for our sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. The apostle says in Romans chapter 3, Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is the mercy that God shows to us is enacted, is available to us, is actually given to us because Christ shed his blood on our behalf. He became the means of God's mercy towards us in his sacrifice. That's what the apostle is saying. And so we rightfully write songs and we rightfully preach on and we rightfully think on the blood of Christ in that sense. But rarely, I think, have I heard a sermon or read a book that really gets to the heart of the other element in the Lord's table, the body of the Lord. You see, when we come to this table tonight, we're going to partake of a cup that represents the blood of Christ. And we're going to take bread that represents the body of Christ. And it's Christ who taught us to do both. And so tonight I really want to focus on this aspect of Christ's death regarding his body tonight. And of course, we cannot divide these things. We can't divide the blood over here and the body over here as if they were two separate entities and had two separate uh, functions altogether. Let me give something away this evening uh, at the beginning. They both have to do with his death. You see, Jesus didn't just get pricked with a needle. He didn't just get, he, he didn't just get a crown of thorns jabbed into his head and bleed. He didn't just get his body ripped apart by a, coat of, or a, a whip of nine cat's tails or whatever. I forget the name of it. He didn't just get all those things. He didn't just... He just wasn't beaten up terribly and he wasn't, he wasn't, all of his energy wasn't robbed him and he wasn't just scorned and mocked. He died. He bled to death. He was beaten to death in a way. His life was taken from his body, which is what fundamentally these things demonstrate, his death until he comes. But first, when we think about the body of the Lord and when we come to the table tonight, What should you think about? And and the first thing I want to remind you of is Christmas. You take this tradition to go back and look at that tradition. This 
This is when Christ became, this is when God the Son became man, right? The incarnation of the Son. I've preached on Philippians chapter 2, this earliest song, as it were, of the New, of the new Testament, of the New Covenant Church. In verse 6, the apostle says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And those words are really profound. Form means being of the exact same essence. That's what it means there. He was the same essence of God. The Son of God was equal with the Father, having the same essence as God. But he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, or some, some translations... To be robbed. He didn't have to take it for himself. It was his by nature. But he did not hold on to it, I think is the tendency of the text. I think that's the tense. It's the purpose of the text. He didn't hold on to it, but he emptied himself. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant. And what is that form? Being born in the likeness of men. So when we talk about, when you come here this evening and you partake of these elements in the first place we need to remember that it is important that Christ became like us Hebrews chapter 2 14 through 17 says this in another way since therefore the children share in flesh and blood that's the children of Abraham as it were we'll see this in the text he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angel that angels that he helps. And that's important. The angels had a falling too, didn't they? But he didn't become an angel. He became like us. He became man. He shares in flesh and blood, there's the elements, isn't it? The body and blood of Christ here. He is truly man. And he did so to help the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. If he was not man, he could not pay for man's sins, in summary. When we think about redemption, we need to think in terms of all of Scripture. You, you see, the whole Scripture is not concerned, really, with the idea of angels. Angels are throughout Scripture, and probably we, we neglect that study too often, being modern people talking about a spiritual realm. Well, our whole faith is centered on a spirit. God is a spirit. But this revelation that we have from beginning to end is for us, man, mankind. And it sequences, it gives the history of God's redeeming purpose that he began before anything was created in himself, but that he is carrying out now in history. And the very earliest history of our humanity begins with our failure. With the failure of one man, Adam. 
And the apostle says in Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that's a problem. Because death came through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He goes on to say, not all sinned in the likeness of Adam and People died before they ever got the law of Moses, so it wasn't because we sinned after the law of Moses, but Adam is a representative of mankind. He is that representative, representative of all mankind. And so why, fundamentally speaking, do all men die? It's because Adam sinned. The man, Adam, that's what his name means. The man sinned. You heard You know, it's the man that holds us down. In the sense of biblically speaking, that's absolutely true. The man holds us down, all of us. But biblically speaking, this is why Jesus said, a body you have prepared for me. Because to right the wrong of man, man had to be involved. Secondly, Jesus' sinless body. Hebrews 10.5, I just said it there, consequently when Christ came into the world, he said, and now he's quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, in the Hebrew, in the Psalm, it's like an ear, you have given me the ear. And literally in the Hebrew, it's you have bored ear hole, an ear hole for me. <laughs> so it's more violent. And the point of the Hebrew is to say, you have caused me to listen. And that's what the New Testament author is here. That's why he's saying this. A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure And this is why, he says, a body you have prepared for me. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. I know what you're saying. I can hear what you're, I know what you say. I know your will is what this is saying. And I've come to do it. And how does he do it? As a man. You have prepared a body for me. So in that body... I will do your will. This reference comes from Psalm 46 through 8, and the focus is a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will. You see, it's not enough that Jesus just became man. He had to be an obedient man. He had to be a righteous man. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That means born under the obligation of the law. To obey all of it. To be perfect in obedience. And by this, he was sent to redeem those who were under the law. But apart from Jesus obeying the law, this Mosaic law that was given, which he was born under covenantally, He had the obligation to obey. And if he would, he would be a perfect man, by the way. We could not be redeemed by him unless he was obedient in every last 
sense of the law. But the scriptures are clear that Jesus was sinless. Jesus said of his own purpose in coming, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And 1 Peter 2.22 says of Jesus that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, we often take the first half of that verse and put a lot of emphasis on that. In him there was no sin. He never sinned. Well, that's profound. But then it says this, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, that's also profound. What does James say about the tongue? (laughs) If anyone can bridle the tongue, that person is perfect altogether. I tell you what, I failed in bridling my tongue this week. I failed point blank at bridling my tongue this week. I hesitate to tell you and confess my sins, and I won't. (laughs) I confess them to my wife. (laughs) Let that be sufficient. It's not a week that goes by where I don't sin with my tongue. And Jesus never did. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. This was a perfect man. Jesus was a perfect man. And Jesus stood his own test of righteousness. He said in Matthew 15, 8, But what comes out of a man proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. What you speak, it shows what's in you. You know what hurts is not only what we say, but what we don't say. In this day and age, when the pressure is on for Christians to run and hide, we are not speaking. We are not speaking the gospel to our friends and to our neighbors and to our relatives, to our coworkers. We're not telling people that we think might lose respect for us if we tell them that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and in three days he rose again so that sinners could be saved. We're guilty of sin as much by what we don't say as much by what we do. But he said everything right. I came to speak the words that my father taught me to speak, and he did. He was a righteous man, but he was also a tempted man. In his body, he was tempted. In Matthew chapter 4, you ever think about what's happening there? I'm not going to rehearse the whole thing, but think of that. He's 40 days not eating. That's, I've never done that. I know somebody who's done that, but he also had juice, and you know he was working around it, and I don't know what that feels like. But I'll, I'll say this, hum, human beings, when we get hungry, we really start defining what matters to us. My wife will call what I get hangry, and it's true. I get a little bit hungry, and it's like now I'm, now I'm going into a rage, a, a lunatic. Give me food, right? Jesus is 40 days without eating, and Satan comes and he tempts him. 
He tempts him where his humanity maybe is at its crudest. Turn that stone into bread. Eat. But what is Jesus doing? He's not, he's not fasting for his own sake. He's fasting to demonstrate that his need is Father, is his heavenly Father. His need is not bread. And he told us it's not our need either. We're so anxious over what we eat and what we drink and what we put on. I'm as guilty as anyone is here about that. I get a little bit ill and I am out of sorts. What's going on now with me? Jesus, 40 days without food. And here comes Satan. Make that bread. Make that into bread. No, no. No, a man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Woe if we believe that. We spend so much time thinking about and talking about food. And then Satan tested his humility, didn't he? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Listen to that. You can just, if you are the son of God, you can just hear what Satan is trying to do. Show yourself. Let me see it. You know, this is what every bully does, isn't it? Tough guy. Oh, you're so tough. Come on, show me. And then you're the one who gets in trouble once you show him, right? He tests his humility. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. No, you don't tempt the Lord your God. Testing his hour of death is the final test. All these things I will give to you. These, all these kingdoms of the world I'll give to you. If you'll fall down and worship me. And I think this test was probably the hardest test. All these kingdoms are yours. Well, that would have been a lot easier than going to the cross. I I just preached this last Sunday that Christ went to the cross, his resurrection and the ascension to receive a kingdom. His kingdom was won through the cross, through his suffering. Without his suffering, he's not lifted up, he's not drawing all men to himself. The ruler of this world is not cast out without his suffering. That was his trajectory to receive the kingdoms of this world. And Satan says, just bow down to me. You can have it all. It's a lot easier than paying for our sins. And Jesus stood the test. And he stood the test. And perhaps when he was at the point of suffering in the garden, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, Christ, our Lord, our high priest, when he's faced with that cup of cursing, that cup of the wrath of God, cries out, I know everything is possible for you, Father. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what does he say? Not as I will, but your will be done. A body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will. Matthew Henry says, 
Christ grounds his willingness upon the Father's will and resolves the whole matter to it. Well, how important is the obedience of Christ for our salvation? The answer is we could not be saved without it. The scriptures are clear that while those who are represented by Adam, the natural man, are condemned through his disobedience, those who are represented by Christ, that is by faith in him, are counted as having the righteousness of Christ as their own. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, that is the pronouncement of righteous from God the judge, and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And that act of justification that declaration from God that we are righteous comes when we trust in Christ alone. But what is necessary for that righteousness to be ours by justification is that it first belonged to Christ. Do you see this? One act of righteousness. Of course, his whole life was full of righteousness. But he says, by one act of righteousness, and I believe that regards his cross. He was obedient in all of life, but his obedience went all the way to the death of the cross. And so third, we see Jesus' broken body. Luke twenty-two nineteen, and he took bread, that is our Lord, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds this purpose for the element. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So it's not enough that he was incarnate, and it's not enough that he lived a perfect life. He died. He gave his body unto death. God did not prepare a body for Christ merely to fulfill the law in life but also to fulfill it in his death. The law that requires perfect righteousness also requires a sacrifice for sin, an atonement for sin, a judgment for sin. And that judgment would either come in ourselves being condemned or in a substitute. Recall what Hebrews said, chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It said that since the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, God prepared a body for Christ in order for Christ to do the will of God, that is, in actively keeping his commandments. But the purpose for that obedience comes even further on in the text, in verses 8 through 10. And he rehearses again what he just said when he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. He puts that in parentheses. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the law, to establish the second, that is the doing of the will of God. But the will of God, notice, is not finished yet that he had for Christ and his body. 
And listen to what he says then in verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified now through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus became like us in his humanity, born under the law, born under sin in order to perfectly obey God, not only in this life, but also unto death, in order to reconcile us to God. Colossians 1, 19 and 22, we're almost done. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that's in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, think about this, you, it's talking to you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind against God. You didn't want God in your thinking, Paul says in another place. Doing evil deeds. If you go further in Ephesians, you were children of wrath. You were under the sway, the dominance of the prince of the power of the air. You followed after that course. That's who you were. But he has now reconciled you in his body the body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other other words, he said this, the righteous one offered himself up in your place to bring peace between you and God. You're the sinner. He's the righteous one. He died your death to bring you to God. And he did this in his own body. So when we come to the table tonight and we partake of this bread, and I hope you will, think of these things. These, this, this truth that we are going to observe tonight is, is not detached from this truth. The incarnate Christ who became man who was righteous in all of his life and who died, whose body was broken in our place, who took on himself the wrath of Almighty God in our place, in his own body, so that we never would. This comes to us not because we're righteous enough, not because we've done anything to deserve it, not because we've commended ourselves to God some way and somehow. This is by the mere grace and mercy of God. We're memorizing Ephesians 2. His mercy depends on his love. He shows mercy who he will because he loves it's his great love that, that caused him to send his son even while we were still in our sins. Christ died for us. Do you delight in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love him? As you come tonight, I hope that you come to the table and you receive these by faith in him, not in these elements, These elements are reminders for us. Yes, Christ is with us by the Holy Spirit, but we come and we know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
The scripture says, after he rendered up himself. It says right here, Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he's there now. And he's still humanity. He's truly man. He's not there in his body and here in his body. That's not how humanity works. He's there at the right hand of the Father. But he's also here with us by the Spirit he gives to us.